Good evening. Welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study. Uh, we're going to be combining tonight's study with our series, which we began on Sunday, Contemplating Christmas. Contemplating Christmas. And uh, tonight we're going to be talking about rediscovering the wonder of Christmas. You can turn over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25 tonight. And we all know this time of the year as what? The most wonderful time of the year, right? That's how it's described. And I often wonder why for many people this time of the year seems to lose some of that wonder. Why is it for many people during this time of the year it can be the most depressing time of the year? or the most expensive time of the year, or the craziest, busiest time of the year, it seems. Or even for some, it could be really the loneliest time of the year. Why is it that the most wonderful time of the year loses its wonder for so many? I think it's because we try to, in so many different ways, in different facets, we try to extract the wonder of Christmas from the wrong people, or from the wrong places, or from the wrong practices. We, we try to get the wonder of Christmas in the wrong way. I would say that maybe the world in general, kids in particular, you probably remember this when you were younger, try to get the wonder of Christmas from maybe, for kids, it's the gifts they, they get, right? The presents they receive. And for others, it's for the gifts they give. Many, many times the, the wonder of Christmas seems to be wrapped up in the presents that are wrapped under the tree. Now, I love presents. I love gifts. Who doesn't, Right? Uh, there's something wonderful, if not, and you use the word magical, um, about the right gift at the right time for the right person. Uh, you can probably remember when you were growing up, certain gifts that you received, whether it was a certain model that you wanted to build and you received it, or maybe a mini bike. Remember when I got my mini bike? Incredible. When you get those kind of gifts, you think, well, I'm never going to ask for anything more than this gift. This is what I wanted. 
I could say my family was pretty generous at Christmas time in general. And we always had a multitude of gifts under the tree come Christmas morning, which was always excited as a little kid. And, but I also remember receiving some gifts that were just kind of like, eh. Um, I wasn't too excited about the gifts that I got. I mean, think about it. What's the most practical gift that we get around Christmas time? Usually it has something to do with clothing. A tie or maybe underwear or socks, right? They're, they're the kind of practical gifts. That doesn't really send the kid over the edge. Usually kids don't care about stuff. They open it up, oh, that's nice, and throw it, throw it in the heap. They're, they're looking for toys. They're looking for something they want, the next toy, the next new electronic device, the latest rage as far as video games or something like that. But when you think about it, those are very practical gifts, Underwear and socks and a shirt or a tie, clothes. Because after all the batteries run out and run dry and after the toy is either lost or broken or maybe you lose interest in the new toy that you got, I found myself still wearing my underwear and my, my socks months later, if not the whole year. They were very practical. I got gifts that sometimes I needed that I really didn't want. And when I think of our Heavenly Father, he's the greatest gift giver ever. That's why in Matthew chapter 7, verse 11, I'll just read it for you. It says, if then you who are evil, Jesus says, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven, your Heavenly Father, give good things to those who ask him? We have a God in heaven who is an incredible gift giver. He's the greatest gift giver of all time. And he doesn't just give us what, he, what we want, although he does. It says if we ask for the desires of our heart, if they're in accord with his will, he will bless us with those. He does that. But he also gives us what, what, we, what we need. And the most precious the costliest gift that we absolutely need, of course, is the gift of his son through whom we receive the, the permanent pardon for our sin and the perfect reconciliation with our creator God and the promise of eternal joy with our forever family, forever and ever. See, it's through him, it's through God, it's through Christ, the needed, the necessary gift. We refer to Christ as what? The reason for the season. Paul says, says it like this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. At the end, he says that Christ came into the world to what? You know the verse, to save sinners, of whom I am foremost, he says, by the way. See, that's the reason we celebrate Christmas right there that Christ came into the world to save sinners. He came into the world to save sinners. And Paul says, you know what? I'm chief. I'm number one in the sinner line. I'm the worst one. And to think about the perfect son of God entering into this messy world <laughs> so that he could save us forever. That's what he's talking about here. 
It's only then when Christ captures our, our fascination and he, he fuels our imagination, he fuels our heart, he fuels our desires and our life. It's only when the wonder of Christmas, when we find it in Christ, that's when it has a tendency to stick to us. It's when Christ captures our fascination. He fuels our heart and our life. It's then that the wonder of Christmas can stick to our souls. So what we're going to do this evening is we're going to look back at the Christmas story. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. We just want to ask God to show us the wonder of the Christmas story so that we can see the wonder of Christ again. And we can extract some of that, that all in wonder from the right person, the right place, participating in the right thing. So, as it reads in the Bible, Gospel, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, it says, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Father, we pray tonight that you would bless our study together. Help us to refocus our hearts and our minds in this busy world in which we live in on the wonder of your gift to us, the wonder of Christmas, Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So just like socks and underwear and ties and shirts are, are the staple items under almost every Christmas tree, the things we really need, um, I want to consider three staple truths that I think can feed the wonder of Christmas as we focus on Christ. Three staple truths of the very first Christmas. And let's just say the first Christmas reminds us of, number one, God sovereignly changes our plans to guide us. God sovereignly changes our plans to guide us. Now, I don't know how you feel, but when I hear the words, when I hear somebody say, well, we have a change of plans, <laughs> uh, when I hear those words, I am not super excited. Because I know that the change of plan usually holds a plan that's less than what I wanted. It's not that we don't make plans and things like that, but when somebody says, well, we got to change your plans, usually it's not what, their, their plan is usually not what we have envisioned or what we dreamed of. It's something less. 
So we have a tendency sometimes when somebody comes across and says, well, I know you're planning this, but here's the change of plan. We get upset. We always get upset. Or at least we get a little irritated, maybe. Uh, remember the, the show, um, The A-Team? Remember they had Mr. T and George Papard as, as uh, Colonel Hannibal Smith? Um, it was in the late 80s. And I was thinking back on that show, and I remember how it ended, ended every time. The, the colonel, the leader of the A-team, he would have a cigar, and he'd light the cigar, and he'd look into the camera, and he'd, he'd say, I love it when a plan comes together. Remember that? Well, yeah, because it was your plan. That's why you love it. Uh, let's just admit it. We love it when our plans come together. But you know what? We have a tendency to get a little upset, a little riled up when our plans are changed or arranged or abandoned sometimes altogether. It's amazing what happens when we have our plans changed. And yet the Bible makes it very, very clear, if you read through the scriptures, that God constantly, that God sovereignly, he wonderfully changes our plans for our good and for his glory. This is constant throughout scripture. I was reminded of a Calvin and Hobbes little comic strip with a Christmas flavor to it, and Calvin wrote a little letter to Santa, and uh, he was reading it to Hobbes, this little make-believe character, and he says, every time at this time I send you a list of what I want for Christmas, he's writing this to Santa Claus, and every year you callously ignore it, and you bring me practical gifts that I don't want at all. What's the deal? Are you insane? Have you gone senile? <laughs> Can you read? Or are you just vindictive? Maybe you're just some twisted oaf bent on destroying little kids' dreams. And then the next square in the, the comic, Hobbes, his make-believe friend, read the letter and he says, uh, you might want to sleep on this one. <laughs> you might want to sleep on this one. And, and Calvin replies, he goes, I know, but you know what? It felt good to write it. How many of us honestly feel like that when God changes our plans? Wait a minute, God, what, what are you doing here? I had this all planned out. Are you, are you being vindictive? What, do you hate me now? Why, why is everything changing? After I've, all I've done for you, God, now that you're going to do it this way? Wait a minute. Come on. I've been to church three times in a row this year. See, how many times do we think like that, though? We have all these plans. We have all these things that we think, we think, are good for us. Because, after all, we, we know what's good for us, right? We can predict the future. We know everything. We know how to line everything up perfectly, exactly. And when our plans don't come to fruition, we get upset, and the reason we get upset is because we start looking around in our lives and we, we say that if it was my plan, God, if, if I was you, I would never do it that way. I would never allow that to happen. I would never have to feel that way. We begin to look at troubles. We begin to look at trials. We begin to look at problems that come into our lives, and we don't know why. And so we look up in the heaven and we say, why, God, why? Why would God's plans 
in part, bring trouble and trials and difficulties and struggles. Why? Well, the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 55, verse 9, God says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways, this is God speaking, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. See, what, what that word means, higher, it means better, it means purer, it means holier. All of those things. What God is saying is, my thoughts and my ways compared to yours are infinitely greater. You don't have a clue. Mine are so much more greater. They're so much more pure. It's going to be so much better for you than you could ever even dream up. He says, I have to change your plans <laughs> because your plans are so puny. They're so small. Your plans are so limited because your mind, your perspective is so limited. See, but here's the good news in this. The good news is every time God changes the plans of one of his children, it's always, it is always in order to give them more than they could have given themselves. To take them to a higher level than they could have taken themselves. To be better to them than they could have treated themselves. See, the plans of God are always, always going to produce more for you and better for you than what your plans could have ever brought about. When God changes your plans, when you belong to him, you're one of his children, it is always infinitely better than what your plan could have ever produced. And so, should we get upset when God changes our plans? No. No. What should we do? We should be rejoicing. Because God is going to treat us better. He's going to take us farther. He's going to take us higher. He's going to bring more glory to himself because of his plan rather than our plan. Now, around Christmas time, usually people tend to bake things, usually cookies, right? You bake Cookies. You got to have some cookies for Santa on Christmas Eve. And in our house, my, my sister in law, who raised us, and along with my brother and other siblings, basically, we always had a couple of weeks of cookie baking. And she, she was a pretty good cook. She was Italian. And she would cook, um, bake sugar cookies, chocolate chip cookies, Italian wine cookies. She was Italian. She made biscotti. She made all kinds of cookies. But I, let's just use chocolate chip. I like chocolate chip cookies. And um, use it as an illustration. I, w I want us to think of chocolate chip cookies kind of in comparison to our life, in comparison to our own lives. Now, you think, a, a, you take a chocolate chip cookie recipe, and um, they're made up of different ingredients, chocolate chip cookies are. So some of the ingredients really taste great all by themselves. You remember when mom was mixing them up and, hey, can I have a taste of that? Can I have a taste of this? You know, things like the chocolate chip cookies or the chocolate chips, they taste good by themselves. Uh, the brown sugar or the sugar tastes wonderful by itself, right? We like sugar. But some of those ingredients that you have to put in the recipe taste awful by themselves. Have you ever taken a 
teaspoon of flour and put it in your mouth and you say, oh boy, that's good. No. Or a little dab of salt. Ugh. By itself, it's not any good. I learned one day the hard, hard way when I was little. I think my sister-in-law was making some kind of cookies or maybe it was my sister. I can't remember, but I just remember seeing that little bottle and seeing vanilla on the label. And I'm thinking, man, I, I love vanilla ice cream. I want some of that. And I just remember grabbing that little vial of vanilla extract and taking a little swig of it. And I thought, wow, what is that? Doesn't taste like vanilla ice cream. Tasted horrible. But what do you have to do when you make chocolate chip cookies? You take all of those ingredients, right? Some of them are really good by themselves. Other ones are horrible. You would never eat them by themselves. But you have to put them all together. See, if you just take what tastes good by itself, the sugar and the chocolate chips, you're not going to have a cookie. It's not going to taste very good. You have to have all those elements, even the ones that don't what taste good. Why? Because it's not about the individual elements. It's not about the individual ingredients. What's it about when you're making chocolate chip cookies? It's about the chocolate chip cookie. It's about the end product. See, what God does is that he knows all the ingredients that he places in our lives. All of them. And some of those ingredients, some of those experiences, boy, they taste wonderful. They're incredible. They're awesome. Wow, bring us more of that, God. But some of those ingredients, some of the events that he puts in our lives are terrible. They're miserable. And if you pulled out some of those things and you looked at them individually, you would sit there and you'd say, God, why did you allow this into my life? doesn't make any sense. But see, here's the thing. God sovereignly chooses every ingredient that goes into our lives. Why? Because he has chosen the result. He has sovereignly chosen the result. He has sovereignly chosen the purpose for your life. He has chosen sovereignly every ingredient that goes into your life because he has sovereignly chosen the purpose. He knows what the end product is and what he desires it to be. This is what your life is for. This is how I'm going to use you. This is what it's all about. He takes the good elements and he takes the terrible elements and he puts them under the heat of his grace and he works them all together and suddenly you step back and you go, whoa, I could have never imagined. Now, we're not going to understand this. We're not going to comprehend this. We're not going to know what the woe is until we get there. Paul mentions in his writings in the New Testament that sometimes it seems like we see life through a foggy mirror, he says, kind of like a mist. We don't understand. But one day, he says, he will show us that it's not about the individual ingredients in our lives. It's about putting it all together under the heat of his grace 
in seeing how he sovereignly has chosen the perfect purpose and the result for each of our lives. I mean, don't we see that in the Christmas story? Let's look at this. We want to see it in particular with Mary and Joseph. Just look at verses 18 and 19. It says there, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And the husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, I probably don't need to tell you this, but I do not really, I really don't believe that Mary and Joseph were planning to start their marriage this way. I don't think I need to tell you that. It's kind of obvious. I don't think I need to tell you that it doesn't work this way. Virgins rarely wake up and find themselves pregnant. It just doesn't happen. As a matter of fact, those two words are kind of like oxymorons, pregnant and virgin. They just don't go together. They're self-contradicting. They don't make special paternity tests for virgins. But look at the language that's used in this verse. It says, Mary was found to be with child. What does that mean? There was a change of plans. <laughs> there was a change of plans. And when the angel showed up to Mary, what was her thing? Remember what we talked about Sunday? She said, how can this be? She didn't comprehend it. She didn't understand it. As I said last Sunday, the first person to doubt or question the virgin birth was the virgin, Mary. The second one was Joseph. <laughs> he didn't say it. We don't have any recorded words of Joseph. But I'm sure, I'm almost positive he was thinking it. Wait, it's not supposed to work this way. He's, he's assuming, right, that, hey, wait, wait, we, we have a plan in place here. What is this news about her being pregnant? This wasn't part of the plan. So what does he do? He comes up with another plan because the original plan was foiled in his mind. So he said, well, i got to come up with a plan. i got to divorce her. i got to put her away privately. He was planning to divorce Mary because in his mind there's only one way she could be pregnant. And it wasn't by him. They were betrothed and they were basically contractually married, but they had to wait to consummate their marriage, their relationship. So they had this betrothal period, but during that time, they would either have to have a divorce or death to separate them. It was as serious as marriage itself. And what he says basically is kind of touching I mean, in a way, through the way he, he obeys, he says, you know what? I love Mary. He obviously had a devout love for her. I don't want to make a public spectacle of her. So I want to do this privately. I don't want everybody to know this. This really shows us in the age where there was this kind of a contractual marriage going on that there were still feelings. There was still love involved. Joseph had incredible love for Mary. And the Bible says that he was a just man. He was righteous. He wasn't perfect by any means, but he understood the ways of God. He understood the laws of God, and he loved God. 
And the plan comes down, and he's like, well, I don't like this. This isn't panning out the way I thought it would. And so he begins to counter this plan and make his own plans. And so he, he, sh he makes his own plan, and then God shows up and begins to change the plan once again. The philosopher Soren Kierkegaard says this, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forward. Life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forward. I mean, isn't that true? How many times in your own life do you look backward and you go, whoa, I get it now. I didn't get it when I was going through it, but I get it now. I mean, while we were going through it, you were like, well, how in the world is this happening? God, where are you? Why are you abandoning me? I hate this. It's terrible. It's awful. He says this. He says, you know what? You stick with me. You live forward. And I'm going to show you as you look backward. Wouldn't you love to be able to travel back in time to this period here in Matthew chapter 1? I just think it would be so cool just to be able to kind of come up to Mary and Joseph at this time and say, hey, look, I know this isn't working out the way you wanted it to. This is not the ideal uh, marriage planning <laughs> uh, situation. But you know what? You just need to chill out. Just relax a little bit because the faith that you're about to demonstrate is going to inspire billions of people. The obedience that you and your wife are going to show, Joseph, in the midst of this hard time, it's not just life-altering for you two, but it's eternally altering for a vast majority of the world. Wow. Let me just tell you, you, know, you just need to relax, take it easy. God has a plan. He'll get you through it. Now, I don't think if we were able to tell them that, I don't think that Joseph and Mary would just say, oh, okay, gotcha. That's good. I'm glad it all worked out. I don't, I don't think they would say that. I think that they would be uh, a little upset. I don't think that they would just be able to say, yeah, okay, I guess God's got our back. We'll just kind of forge on with this thing. No. Um, I think that they would have some issues with somebody just saying, hey, God's going to work it all out. Don't worry about it. The response wouldn't be, that sounds great. I can't wait. Boy, this is fun. They'd probably look at us as if we're out of our mind. But you know what? It would still be true. <laughs> it would still be true. Someone once said, if you want to make God laugh, what? You heard it. Tell him your plans. If you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. How many of us believe we have these grand plans. We think that, you know, we're so amazing, our life is so amazing, and, and God is looking down from heaven going, seriously? Seriously, that's your plan? That's all you got? Now, some people are type A, you know, they can't even get out of bed without having a plan. Um, 
Now, that, this, we're not saying you shouldn't plan. Matter of fact, the Bible says just the opposite. But we need to make our plans and then hold on to them loosely, I guess I would say. Proverbs 16.1 says, we can make our own plans, but the Lord gives the right answer. Or Proverbs 16.9, it says, we can make our plans, but the Lord, what, determines our steps. Proverbs 19.21, you can make many plans, but the Lord's purpose will prevail. I was thinking while preparing this message about plans throughout my life that I've made. Um, and I'm still kind of ticked off that they didn't come to fruition. <laughs> I'm sure everybody has things like that. You're still kind of upset that the plans changed. Didn't work out the way you wanted it to. Or maybe there's some plans that you're still grieving over and maybe today God just wants to say, you know what? Wipe your face, dry your tears. Realize that I'm going to take you farther. I'm going to give you much more. It's going to be better for you. I'm going to take you higher. I'm going to bring more glory to myself with my plan than your plan could have ever done. Maybe today the wonder of Christmas is God really, really does. He really does have a plan for you. And it's far more amazing than our plan, just like Mary and Joseph. Far more amazing. We could never, ever come up with God's plan ourselves. So the first Christmas reminds us that God sovereignly changes our plans. Secondly, it reminds us that God routinely blows our minds to humble us. God routinely blows our minds to humble us. God shows us oftentimes through the, the truth of his word and through circumstances in our own lives that he really is infinitely higher and infinitely smarter and infinitely better than we are. It's kind of like when you're standing at the Grand Canyon and you're looking at this giant hole. It's huge. It goes on for miles. And you're standing there and you feel so small. You feel so small. See, God has to have those moments in our lives when he reminds us how small we really are. But he also reminds us how big he is. He blows our minds so that he can humble us so that we will listen. We'll break away from our own plan and realize, wow, God does have a far superior plan than mine. We certainly see this with Joseph. Look at, at verses 20 and 23 of Matthew 1. He says, but as he considered these things, he, he thought about these things. Well, what things? Well, think about it. If you were Joseph, what would you be thinking of if you just found out your, your, your wife, your virgin wife was pregnant? <laughs> your your wife-to-be was pregnant. What things would you be thinking about? Wow, okay, he's probably thinking, well, Mary cheated on me. She was unfaithful. 
We have a baby on the way. I have to get this divorce taken care of. I have to do it silently because I love her and I don't want it to be a, a big spectacle in our community. So he's thinking about his plan. And the plan changed. And so what did he do? He adapted and he changed his plan. And he goes to bed and it's still on his mind. And then the angel shows up. See, sometimes I think in life, God often tells us things while we're unconscious. And he tells us those things because we would never believe them if we were conscious. So he, he lays Joseph down to sleep, and then an angel comes and says, hey, listen, Joseph, I'm going to tell you something that you're never going to ever believe. I'm going to blow your mind, Joseph. It says, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, verifying his identity, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. What is God doing? God is telling Joseph, there's something wrong in your thinking here. You're having wrong thoughts about Mary. It's not what you are observing. It's not what you think. She has been faithful to you, Joseph. She is a virgin, Joseph. She's pure. She's righteous. She's holy. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. What? Verse 21, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what God had spoken by the prophet. It's interesting, the angel actually quotes a messianic prophecy that Joseph would have been very, very, very familiar with from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. What is it? It says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, many times we fail to consider when we read this certain things. We fail to consider the Jews of this day, and ever since this day, really, have never really literally believed that a virgin would become pregnant with the Messiah. When they read that verse, they didn't take it literally. That didn't even dawn on them. They didn't take it literally. In their minds, a woman who's never been had a sexual relationship with a man is, can't be pregnant. And then you're telling me it's going to be God who's inside of her? They never thought Emmanuel, God with us, was literal. But guess what? They would still be wrong, right? Because the angel shows up and he says, hey, this is happening. This is very real. This is literally true to Joseph. A virgin is pregnant. And not only pregnant, but pregnant by the Holy Spirit. So that inside of her, inside of Mary, God is not only with you guys, but this baby is God. Talk about blowing your mind. God with you, God present with you, in you. So you have this incredible mind-blowing revelation to Joseph that Jesus is God and he is 100% God and 100% man. 
the incarnation. There are people today who say that, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. And I want to say, what Bible are you reading? When Jesus said, you see me, you've seen the Father. I mean, what do you think he was saying? What do you think that means? The angel is saying to Joseph that this is God. God is going to be with you. God is in her. And one of the ways we know this is because he named his son what? Jesus. He named his son Jesus. That's Hebrew name Joshua, or the Greek is Jesus. It means Yahweh means Yahweh saves, the Lord saves. And the angel goes on to say, name him Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. God says the Lord saves. Well, wait a minute. Now it's saying Jesus saves. Well, which is it? Is it God that saves or Jesus saves? Yes. <laughs> That's the answer. Yes. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. He is 100% God inside of, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now, the other half of that miracle is true as well. It's important. 100% God, but he's also 100% man. And we talked a little bit about this Sunday. He's 100% human. Jesus was fully human in three ways. He was fully human physically. The gospel writers are very adamant in their writings about showing us how Jesus possessed human qualities. They showed us that he was fully human physically. How was he born? He was born as a baby. And what happened? He became a teenager. And then what happened? He became a man. Physically, he ate, he drank, he slept, he bled, he died. He was 100% fully physically human. But he was also mentally human. Mentally human. And it, the Gospels prove this out as well. It says that he was fully human mentally. Look, look at Luke chapter 2, verse 52. It says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Why do I read that? Because you know what? God never increases in wisdom. God is what? Omnipotent. He knows everything. Omniscient. He knows everything. Omnipotent. He's all-powerful. Omnipresence. He's everywhere. God never increases in wisdom. So this is speaking of what? It's speaking of the human aspect of Jesus, that he increased in wisdom, humanly. When I think about something, think about this. Jesus had to learn how to read. He had to learn how to write. He had to learn how to add and subtract and multiply. He had to learn those things. He didn't come out of Mary's womb preaching repentance, shouting the gospel. No, it says he grew in wisdom. He came out crying just like any other baby at their birth. It's funny, we sing the song Silent Night, right? And you hear the little phrase in there. 
No crying he makes. And wrong. Fake news. I don't think so. I promise you, if Jesus was fully human, and he was, and he was a baby, and he was, he cried. Jesus was fully human physically and fully human mentally, but he was also fully human emotionally. He was a fully human emotionally. In other words, he loved, he laughed, he cried, he got angry, he cracked jokes about his friends. I think Jesus had an incredible sense of humor. He made fun of his friends. Not in a malicious way, in a fun way. That's what friends are for, right? That's what real friendship is. He made fun of them. He laughed with them. He used sarcasm to make his points. He spoke in hyperbolic language at times. He was a very emotional being. And so you have this mystery going on here. We call it in theology the hypostatic union. See, it's not that Jesus was half God and half man. That couldn't be true. No, he was God and man fully together. The hypostatic union. Well, why is that important? Because Jesus is able to identify with us. He's able to identify with us. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it says, We do not have a high priest, speaking of Christ, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. See, Jesus doesn't just feel sorry for us. He doesn't just feel sorry for us. The Bible says he sympathizes with us. He empathizes with us. He knows what we're going through. He knows the pain. He knows the problems, the troubles, the trials, the struggles, the weaknesses, all the feelings. Why? Because he's been there. He's been there. First Peter chapter 5, verse 7 tells us that we should cast all our anxieties, all our worries, cast them on him, on Christ. Why? Because he cares for you. Those two words, casting and him caring, both are in continuous action. We are casting our burdens on Christ continually, and he is continually caring for us. Isn't that an incredible truth? See, we don't have a Savior who's just with us. He's been like us. And he can identify with everything we go through. So when we pray and when we're crying and we're weeping and we're in a situation where we just can't even believe what is happening around us, Jesus says, I know. I feel it. I understand what you're going through. I identify with you. I identify with your feelings. But maybe even more importantly than that, he not only can identify with us, but he's able to be a substitute for us. Jesus is able to substitute for us. Isaiah 53, 5 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed, spiritually speaking. He heals us. See, God is holy. He's just. And you know what? The Bible says that he will punish sin the way it deserves to be punished. There's only one way, death. 
The soul that sins dies. But you know what? God does not want to punish you or me the way we deserve. That's not in his heart. Here's the amazing thing. God came up with a plan where he could justly punish my sin and your sin without personally punishing us. Incredible. It's amazing. He can punish our sin in totality, but not having to punish us. That's the plan of Christ. That's what Jesus is all about. That is him being fully God. That's him being fully man so that he could accomplish what we needed most. God, in his justice, in his holiness, he could punish our sin for what it deserves while not having to punish us for what we deserve. That's why it takes both fully God and fully man because humans are imperfect. All human beings are imperfect. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. So it required Jesus to be fully God because that's the only way he could ever live a perfect, sinless, flawless life. Man alone could not do it. Only God can live a sinless life, a flawless life. And so it required him to be God, fully God, so that he could live that perfect life on our behalf. But guess what? As we said on Sunday, God can't die. So it required Jesus to be fully human because he had to die physically and God can't die. So he needed both so that he could do what we needed most. He needed to die on our behalf. And so being fully God, he could live perfectly on our behalf. He could fulfill the law. He satisfied the law. He satisfied the things that God has for us. And as a human, he could, as a perfect man, be our substitute. He could be our sacrifice. God says, because of Christ, he can be your, your substitute. He can die in your place. He can be the one that satisfies my wrath. He can be the one that gets your death, my death, so that we can have life, his life. It's amazing. It makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? Now, we're never going to fully understand the depths of the incarnation, never. As a matter of fact, J.I. Packer, incredible mind, said this, it is here at the first Christmas that the profoundest and the most unfathomable depths of Christian revelation lie. The more you think about this, the more staggering it gets. So we see the first Christmas reminds us that God sovereignly changes our plans to guide us, that he routinely blows our minds to humble us. And then lastly here, God continually uses our obedience to bless us. He uses our obedience to bless us. You know, some people think of God and their relationship with God like it's kind of like a, a, somebody that owns pets. It's like we're little dogs and, and he's the owner. He treats us like animals. You know, if we roll over, if we sit, if we go get the stick, then he pats us on the head and says, oh good, I'm going to bless you. 
That's not what the Bible says. That's not the relationship we have with God. God doesn't tell us to obey him for his entertainment. We're told to obey God for our benefit. God knows that through obedience, through our obedience to him, and as a result of our obedience, what happens? Blessings flow out of that. We see this in verses 24 and 25 of the text in Matthew. It says, when Joseph woke from sleep, after the visit from the angel, he did, look at what it says, as the angel commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and then he called his name Jesus. Wow. Incredible. What's incredible is that it's just a, an amazing thing when you think about it that here is Joseph and he's, he's willing to obey. He's willing to obey. He's willing to do what God requires him to do. Sometimes when people come and ask and sometimes they want to get married and uh, I always want to make sure that they're both believers. They're both Christians and that's very important. The Bible says you shouldn't be unequally yoked with someone who's outside of Christ. And sometimes they don't understand that. They just want to get married and they don't want to deal with it. And and. God tells us as a Christ follower not to marry someone who's not a Christ follower for a very good reason. God says within that obedience, if you can obey that, in it, through it, because of it, I will bless you. I will bless you. But you know what? If you step out of that obedience, if you disobey, it leads always, always to hardship. It leads to pain. I mean, think of it this way. When you choose to sin, you choose to suffer. When you choose to sin, you choose to suffer. And so through this very first Christmas story and the obedience of both Mary and Joseph, we see that God, through their continual obedience, he just kept on blessing. Do you understand that when it comes to Joseph in the Bible, we don't have one recorded word of this man in the whole Bible. We don't know what he said. But what do we have? We have a record of his obedience. We have a record of his obedience. I mean, is it any wonder that when the Heavenly Father began to choose, sovereignly choose, who is going to be his son's stepdad? Let's see, who is it going to be? You've got to pick somebody, right? I mean, you think raising your kids was hard. Try raising the Son of God, literally. Is it any wonder he chose a man who would listen and obey? He may have been a man of few words. He didn't, we don't have any words from him. But he was a man of a lot of action. I'll take that any day. Is it any wonder that Jesus later on would say this, but even more blessed are those who hear the word of God and put it into practice. <laughs> Remember the song Frank Sinatra was famous for, right? I did it my way. 
Well, Joseph didn't do it his way. <laughs> he did it God's way. And when he did it God's way, guess what? God's way created some problems. Some problems he couldn't solve. It created some circumstances he would have never chosen for himself. It created even some rumors that maybe he couldn't squash. Yet he obeyed anyway. And you know what? So did Mary. So did Mary. Look at the result of their own lives. The blessing of God upon them, but also the blessing on us. As a result of their obedience. Do you know why Jesus lives in his people? Do you know why he literally lives in us and through us? Literally, the, it, it tells us it's because Jesus calls us to a life and calls us to live a life that is absolutely impossible to do apart from him. It's impossible. And the Christmas story is the ultimate adventure story. It's full of danger. It's full of mission and faith and risk. And so many times when it comes to Christmas, what do we want our Christmas to be? Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Right? We want Christmas to be ease and comfort and safe and secure. That's not Christmas at all. The first Christmas was full of danger and risk and mission and faith. And guess what? That's not just what Christmas is all about. That's what Christians are supposed to be all about. Is it any wonder that we lose the wonder of Christmas because we're trying to get the wrong thing from it every year? What is it this year? Maybe even in these three simple truths. Maybe he's telling us to wake up. Wake up! It's socks and underwear time. <laughs> Remember what this is all about. Maybe God's telling us, just do what I tell you to do. I have the greatest plan for you that you could ever dream of. And when you get up here with me, I'll show you what it's all about. But in the meantime, you're going to have to trust me. Would you bow in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these truths that we can draw out of this story in Matthew, the Christmas story. And Father, we pray that you would remind us that you truly are a, a God who sovereignly chooses your plan for our life. To guide us, to lead us, you routinely blow our minds to humble us to help us to remember that we're not as big as we think we are, but you are much bigger than we think you are. 
and also that you continually use our obedience to bless us. Lord, I pray for every heart that's listening to this message, and I pray that you would soften their heart to the things of God. Lord, that we would understand our, our obedience is for our benefit, not for your entertainment. And that your blessings flow out of our obedience to you. Think of what Paul says in Philippians 3. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death. Lord, help us to remember the wonder of Christmas. Help us to make sure that we're focusing on the right things. And I pray for that one heart maybe that's listening, that has yet to put their faith or trust in the risen Christ. I pray that maybe this is the, the time that you're calling them home. That they would turn their head to you and, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. They would recognize their own sinfulness before a holy God and their need of a remedy of forgiveness. Help them to see that you've already provided that through Christ. They simply need to reach out and trust you to forgive their sin. Put their faith or trust in the work of Christ. In his resurrection, he will save you. Give us a good evening. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.